Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, and today I'm talking with Carolyn Chen, author of the book Pray Code When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. Carolyn, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Yeah, so I am a sociologist of religion, and I have um, I've been a sociologist of religion since 2002. And I my first book was called "Getting Saved in America: Taiwanese Immigration and Religious Conversion," where I looked at religion, um, religious conversion among Taiwanese immigrants. Um, I've also written on the religious experiences of second generation Asian Americans and Latinx. Um, and this is my new book. Uh, that looks at uh, work and spirituality in Silicon Valley. It's such an unusual topic, and yet one that is so fascinating, illuminating. What led you to uh, choose it as a topic for your next book? Yeah, so it was a bit is is roundabout actually. Um, I, as I said, I'm a scholar of religion. I'm a sociologist of religion, and in the past, I've always looked at religion by studying um, religious things. So religious people, religious institutions, communities, texts, etc. And that is the conventional way that most scholars of religion study religion. Um, But I think that any of us who live in metropolitan areas know and notice that the decline in religious affiliation and decline in religious participation. And so the question for me was, how do I study religion when people are not affiliating as religious or don't see what they're doing as religious? Um, So I became interested in looking at religious things in secular spaces. And so this project first started off as me looking at religion and spirituality in yoga studios. So yoga studios being secular spaces, but that had religious objects, religious practices, you know, chanting, icons, etc. in them. Um, so I spent time um, interviewing folks who practice, so yoga practitioners. And one of the things that just came out really strongly in those interviews was when I asked them about why they did, why they practiced yoga, how they practice yoga, and what kind of difference it made in their lives. This theme of work kept on coming back again and again. And it became clear to me that, you know, they would say things like, well, um, I practice yoga at the end of a day, at the end of a long day at work, because uh, it helps to de-stress me, um, it helps to relax me, so that I can come back the next day, day and be a better, you know, nurse, lawyer, whatever it is, you know, fill in the blank. And so this theme of work was really prominent in these narratives. And it became clear to me that maybe I was looking at the wrong thing, where I had assumed that yoga was a spiritual practice or a religious practice even, that maybe I had confused what was actually sacred here and became evident to me that really what was sacred was work and that in fact it was yoga that was being used in service of work and so that that their spirituality really revolved around the work that they did. And so that really led me then to looking at the workplace. 
And I, I find your focus on Silicon Valley especially interesting because you could have written a book that could have looked at it in general, looked at you know various you know blue collar, white collar occupations, or maybe how it worked in region. And you chose an industry, and it's one at which I I, I must confess, you know, sometimes seems to have almost cultish aspects to it. You know, the 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 almost uh, you know profound faith that what they're doing is going to change the world. And, and, and I, why Silicon Valley in particular? Why? So actually, this was another random thing. Um, I was, um, at the time I was a professor, my husband and I were professors at Northwestern University, and we were on, we were going on sabbatical um, to, um, at Stanford. And so Stanford, of course, is in the heart of Silicon Valley. So, so it was, so it was actually just this random occurrence that I was in Silicon Valley when I started this project, but it ended up being, you know, the perfect place because the argument that I'm making in my book is that it's a case study of Silicon Valley, but I'm making generalizations to the work experiences of of um, of highly skilled uh, workers around the country. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon this general argument about how exactly is work replacing religion in the lives of so many Americans? Is it something that, it, to what degree is it being orchestrated? To what degree is it more a, a, of a grassroots phenomenon? Yeah. So these are great questions that you're asking. And I want to just back up here and say that this, what I, what I, what I see happening in Silicon Valley, I'm trying to argue is part of a trend, uh, a movement that's been happening um, in the United States for the last four years. And this is something that started in the late 70s and 80s with the restructuring of work, the rise of the knowledge, indus- of the knowledge industry, and also the, um, and also the advent of global capitalism. Um, and so we see this movement towards work replacing w- w- religion, particularly in the lives of high-skilled uh, in, in in the lives of high-skilled workers or professionals. And we see this in two ways. We see this in the ways that um, work is becoming a source of identity, belonging, belonging, meaning, and purpose in the lives of pro- American professionals. So that these are things that Americans once turned to religion to fill those kinds of needs. They felt they found a source of belonging, identity, meaning, and purpose in their churches and temples, synagogues, etc. But now we see uh, American professionals finding this instead in the workplace. Secondly, what we see is that companies are turning towards spirituality um, as a way to make their workers more productive. Um, this is we see this in Silicon Valley and many companies around the country in the use of practices such as meditation and mindfulness um, to help their workers become more focused, become more efficient. Um, we also see this in the ways that um, company cultures have really borrowed from a lot of religious culture, you know, using the language of mission, purpose, 
calling, a journey, um, authenticity and passion, you know, just to describe work. Um, And we also see this in so many of the personal development practices, the kind of investment that companies are making in their most elite workers, their senior employees, through things like executive coaching in order to align the souls of their most important workers with the mission of the company. And so I call this sort of 40-year trend in this place where we are now, um, that we're in a situation where we live in, for those of us who are high-skilled workers and live in places like Silicon Valley or live in places like Seattle um, or New York or Cambridge, these knowledge industry hubs, that actually we live in what I call a theocracy of work. I, I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that a little bit. It, it how do you see this dynamic working? Is it that with the decline of religion that people are turning to work? Is work crowding out religion? Is it a little bit of a of a of a combination of the two? And, and how exactly are they finding that fulfillment in work that they used to get from religion? Basically, what was it that religion was providing specifically in terms of that fulfillment that you, that they're now getting from work? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that one of the things that I that you you just said that I that I did not mention is that so what we see happening in the late 70s and the 80s is the rise in the number of hours that um, college age workers are spending in work. So that now most people who are college educated, high skilled workers are spending, say, 50 or plus hours a week in work. Um, And so we see this, what I call the expansion of work, work taking more and more of people's time and energy and devotion. But on the other hand, what we see is that work is giving more. Um, Workplaces, um, as I had mentioned earlier, as as in reaction to the rise of global capitalism and increased competition, companies have really paid much more attention to their company cultures and transforming their company cultures in order to get the maximal investment of their workers. So they've done this by providing for more and more of their needs, not only their material needs, right, by giving them a paycheck, but also offering, but also fulfilling their social needs, right? By doing things like creating a family atmosphere, um, creating, like in many of these Silicon Valley companies, I, I, I observe they have things like check-ins, weekly check-ins, where actually one of um, the CEOs kind of uh, made a slip and called it prayer time, you know, that where they're actually going around. And so creating those kinds of bonding experiences, and then also attending att- to the spiritual development and spiritual care of their workers. I mean, we see this as in, in the extreme in many Silicon Valley companies pre-pandemic, where Companies are taking care of the body, minds, and souls of their employees. They're feeding them. They have gyms. They offer massage services, you know, custom-made smoothies, uh, meditation classes, et cetera, et cetera. So what you see here is that workplaces are expanding their reach into the lives of their employees, both demanding more, taking more time and energy, but also giving more, providing more of their needs. 
Now, at the same time that we see this happening, we see the decline in religious participation and religious affiliation in the United States, which really starts very slowly in the 1970s and then really picks up in the 90s. Um, and But it's not just religious participation, it's large-scale civic participation, which we really start seeing from the 70s onwards in the United States, um, so that you see the peak of civic participation in the 1950s, and then from there on out, it's really going downhill. And so my argument is that what we're seeing, particularly among high-skilled workers, is essentially the shift of their locus of fulfillment from being from these spaces like churches and temples or their bowling leagues or their political clubs or neighborhood associations in these non-work associations and it being um, increasingly absorbed, monopolized and colonized by the workspace. I, I thought it was really interesting how you talk about that impact that you described earlier about how it's not just that people are doing this; it's how the companies are responding to it and and and, uh, and embracing it as as a trend. I particularly love the phrase that you used in the book, "corporate maternalism," because it, it speaks to this notion of how there it's not quite a, a, a parental role, but it is the sense of giving them the sort of comfort that they that they needed that they feel that their workers need in order to be. Uh, maximally productive. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain a bit about how that trend emerged and 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 what why they you know that that need was perceived and why they didn't just you know take it for granted that it was taking place outside the workplace. Yeah. So one of the things um, when I was interviewing um, HR folks and tech firms is that I was really struck by the language of care and maternal care that they use to describe their jobs. Um, you know, people would say to me, um, like one one HR executive said to me, um, the sign of a good HR is how well you're nourishing the souls of your employees. Um, and she wasn't an exception. So many of the people that I interviewed, you know, described their employees like plants that needed to be cared for, watered and fertilized, you know, um, and, and that that essentially they saw their jobs as caring for their employees. And I think that this comes out of this idea that in Silicon Valley, um, workers work really, really hard. And so one of the concerns of all companies is this problem of burnout. And so the pro so they see the problem as, of burnout as really being, it's a company liability. It's essentially a depreciation of their most valuable assets. Because if you consider in a knowledge economy, your knowledge workers, well, that's your most valuable assets. It's not things like your machines. It's not things like natural resources, you know, as it might be in an industrial economy. So there's this concern for how do you take care of your human capital. And so this really became a concern for these companies and particularly for HR. And I call it corporate maternalism because it is such a feminized um uh, it's such a feminized department in, in the tech workplace. I mean, the tech workplace is so overwhelmingly male. Uh, and then when you see the people who are arranging the meals, the social activities, making sure that everything runs smoothly, the design and making sure that, you know, as one HR, uh, uh, as, as one HR professional said to me, making sure that the employees are that fulfilled self. This was all 
the job that fell to the place of of these of women in the company. So that's why I call it corporate maternalism, um, and this overwhelming concern for both for you know body, mind, and soul. This sort of sort of like holistic care um, of these individuals, and there was a sense that um, a if they were to fulfill these needs outside of the company, it would be taking time away from work. So it was definitely strategic. You know, why not provide the barber in-house or the gym classes in-house or all the meals in-house? Because they were very clear with me. If they leave, they are actually, they're not coding. They're not working. So how do we fulfill these needs and also get them, you know, assure that there's maximal output at the same time of their productivity. So this was one way to do it. There, there was also the sense that, was that if they weren't taking care of their spiritual and social needs, that they would be less productive and less effective workers. So in a way, they're the Silicon Valley solution to the problem of work-life balance, which all American professionals face, is that the companies would provide for the life. They would provide for the life in the companies in through the workplace. It's we've been talking about this primarily from the standpoint of what companies are doing, but you also talk about how the people, the employees themselves are responding. And I, I thought that was a very interesting uh, approach to it about how you, know, you you looked at, you know, how it was that they, that they uh, interpreted this, how it was that they utilized these resources and, and utilized this attitude to find their true selves. Now, I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a, a bit about how it is that they are dealing with this, given the fact that, as you explained, these are jobs that, in one sense, are profoundly alienating. That that it's it's not just a matter of they don't have time for church. It's that they don't have time for a lot of social connections outside the workplace and everything. And and how you how you uh, present this as one way of of combating that, one way of of, of trying to uh, counteract that on some level. Yeah, well, I think that what happens is that if they don't have time to make friends and interact with folks outside of work, then all of the social interactions are inside the workplace. So there's all these, so they provide for clubs. There's, you know, it's sort of like going to Robert Putnam's argument about bowling alone. Well, people aren't bowling alone in Silicon Valley. They're bowling with their bowling leagues that are sponsored through the companies. You know, there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of sociality in these companies and it's all centered in the company. Um, But there's also this part that, you know, you're getting at, at just connecting with your authentic self. And so what we'd see is that companies would sponsor, um, that they would have, Uh, personal development programs, mindfulness and meditation programs, um, um, where employees could learn spiritual practices. So practices of meditation, mindfulness, uh, spiritual reflection to help them align their work, uh, to help them align their interiors, their authentic selves to their workplace. So a lot of these exercises were really figuring out like, who am I? Who am I really behind underneath all of these layers? And yet the questions and the exercises were all pointing towards defining that authentic self through one's productive labor. Um, So that you would ultimately come to think of who you are by, uh, by the work that you do in this world. 
Now, up to this point, we've been talking about this primarily in terms of how work is filling this void. But as you explained in the book, religion is not a passive actor here. It's not it, you're not just talking about how people are responding to this changing world by by turning to uh, their 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 uh, workplaces. You also describe how the religious traditions are also changing. And you speak of this uh, primarily in terms of Buddhism, which, as you explain, is is being utilized a lot by these employers for a lot of these concepts, such as you know, the, the drawing part for mindfulness, meditation, yoga. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain how, how you see the religious institutions or, 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 or faith traditions in Silicon Valley uh, What's happening with them? What, why are people simply turning to those institutions outside the workplace, but in their communities? And, and also how those institutions are responding to what you know might be viewed on one level as, as, as a loss of, of customers or uh, a loss of, 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 of uh, you know, devotees or, 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 or loss of parishioners. And, and, and how are they you know, trying to uh, you know, accommodate this? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really important part of the story here is that, you know, what I argue is that when work replaces religion, well, religion takes on the logic of the workplace. Um, I'll share with you a story of a, um, of a Buddhist priest that I interviewed, um, and he is the head of his um, of, of a Buddhist temple, his Zendo. And he he was sharing with me how. Um, that the membership in his zendo was flagging. Um, people were not coming to the services and to the sittings because they were so busy with work. And so one of the things that he decided to do was to bring meditation into the workplace um, as a response um, and thinking that, you know, if they're not coming here, well, then I'll go there to where they are. And what I, um, and he was just one among so many of the meditation teachers, uh, Dharma teachers, uh, Buddhist teachers that I interviewed who really felt that in order to, um, that, that in order to survive as an institution and also in order to survive just literally because of the cost of living in the Bay area, that they could no longer just be, uh, working in these nonprofit institutions like the temple or offering a meditation class at the San Francisco Zen center, and that they had to provide services to these tech companies. Um, and so, so this is, and, and others would see this as a great opportunity. This is a way to propagate the Dharma because now, you know, meditation is, there's a lot of scientific research on meditation and that's, being um, uh, and that's being connected to productivity. Um, now, the problem, however, with um, when meditation providers or Dharma teachers have to go to the workplace, the problem is that they need to alter the tradition. They need to alter the message. They need to alter the the practices so that they can assimilate and integrate into a secular workspace. So, what I found is that. Um, meditation providers, I call them meditation entrepreneurs, essentially they had to figure out how to market and sell what is a spiritual religious practice into a productivity practice. Um, and they had to do this in several ways. Um, some of it was 
basically hiding the religious origins um, of meditation and mindfulness. Um, one, one person told me that she was not allowed to say the B word, which is Buddhism um, in the workplace, um, and that she was reprimanded for doing that. Um, the other thing is that people really needed to emphasize the science um, in meditation, um, oftentimes using kind of questionable or you'd say pop science, um, and that it wasn't necessarily the, the with using that really lacked the rigor of science, but needed to do it in order to market um, to market the meditation. Um, and there is also a way that um, people needed to justify meditation as essentially improving the bottom line. So this was a sort of hollowing out what I would say, um, impoverishing these very, very rich religious and spiritual practices and traditions so that they would essentially fit into the logic and goals of the workplace. Yeah, that's what I was, I was thinking about that, how you presented it in, in uh, that chapter, where it's not just a matter of how they're downplaying the Buddhism, it's how the, the spiritual element of it is being leached out. I, I like how you refer to it at one point as bottom line Buddhism, and how you refer to it uh, just a little bit later uh, as, I can't remember the exact uh, phrase for it, uh, but it was, it was this idea that it's, you know, oh, I remember it was, it was on the go Buddhism, and, and about how you it's it's you know stripping it down to what you know works best for the goals of the company and i was wondering you know those varieties what does that say about the direction that buddhism seems to be going for the people who are currently being exposed to it or exposed to elements of it yeah so i talk about essentially how religious and spirit, spiritual experience becomes altered when work replaces religion or when you live in a work-dominated society. Um, and so among the folks that I interviewed um, there, I also interviewed older people who had come to Silicon Valley, the Bay Area in the 60s or in the 70s. And so I, and I heard their narratives and their spiritual biographies as well. And they were really strikingly different from the more recent, I call them migrants, because very few people are actually from Silicon Valley, they all come from somewhere else. And so more, you know, the more recent generation of folks would talk about meditation in a very different way from older folks. So I created these typologies, um, folks who came to the Bay Area in the 1960s and 70s, they all, they most of them came because they wanted to participate in the counterculture. And for them, um, they were often motivated by very spiritual reasons um, and really wanting to participate in this, uh, you know, really one of the greatest um, spiritual movements of the 20th century that happened in San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury and this... Um, you know, discovery of Asian religions and this expanding of consciousness, etc. And I call these folks mystics. And for them, they were, again, spiritual exploration was the reason that they came, that the reason that they were here. They, they, um, they barely talked about their work. And if they talked about their work, they talked about their work as secondary, as simply a way for them 
to support their spiritual journeys. I remember one guy who said that he came from New York and he spent all of his time basically just learning at the feet of every uh, Asian spiritual guru who came into town. And then when he ran out of money, he decided to work and he was a children's camp counselor. So that was like that experience, right? Of meditation um, in the 1960s and 70s. And then you really compare it to today where, you know, um, one of uh, the people that I interviewed um, who teaches meditation and mindfulness to companies, but was who, who had, originally come to the Bay Area in the 1960s, he said that to me this line, um, back then it was about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Now it's about productivity. Essentially that this is what meditation is about now. Before it was about this exploration, this kind of expansion in consciousness about sort of disrupting, like disrupting social systems, right? Um, and ways of thought. And now it's really about how do you optimize the self? So these practices are now in service to optimizing this, the, the self so that you could be more marketable in this competitive job market, um, in, in, in this Silicon Valley ecosystem where nine out of 10 startups fail. So that experience of religion and spirituality is very different. So I call this later generation of folks essentially users of religious technology so that instead of thinking of themselves as belonging to a religious community or to a commune, which was the way that mystics experienced uh, their spirituality, instead it's like them essentially uh, using an app on their phone. Well, <laughs> what do I need to, you know, here I have a problem. Um, I need to multitask a lot at work. So how do I utilize meditation so that I could focus more? Um, you know, here's my problem. My work requires me to be innovative, but my brain is so fried. I can't be innovative at this moment. How do I use this practice now to be to, to, you know, focus my mind, to calm my mind uh, so that I could, so that I could access more innovative problem solving solutions. So, so, so the whole approach and practice and experience of religion is very, very different in this day and age. Now you spend most of the book reporting on what you found you have interviewed people you you've you've talked to people from a, a very you know wide range of of perspectives uh dealing with this at the end of your book you talk about some of the consequences of this the consequences of this for in terms of the workplace the consequences of this in terms of uh the people who are not part of this techtopia that you described and, and you talk about you know what you know might follow from this i was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon the conclusions you took from your examination of the subject and how what it means for uh, the workplace, for these faith traditions, and ultimately for uh, the people themselves. Yeah. So in my in my conclusion, I, I call it um, I, I call it Tectopia, and Tectopia is a socially engineered society where work is the highest source of human fulfillment. Uh, which is what I see Silicon Valley as. Um, and I argue that this is a kind of society that makes some people really whole, 
then this was a word that I kept on hearing um, in these companies. It's like, how do these companies, how can we bring wholeness to our employees? So it makes some people really whole, but it also leaves some people really broken. Um, and what I argue here is that when you, in these, in a place, in a techtopia, essentially what happens is that work becomes this giant, powerful magnet. Um, and here, you know, we usually, we traditionally speak of work as exploiting and, and, and extracting from us, right? But what I found in my study of Silicon Valley and what I think is the way that work has shifted in the lives of high-skilled workers is that work works by attracting rather than extracting. So the workplace is like this giant magnet that essentially attracts the time, energy, and devotion of a community. And it monopolizes the time, energy, and devotion of a community. And when that happens, if you were to sort of map out kind of these different magnets as uh, social institutions, as different sized magnets in society, what you see happening in the last 40 years is that work becomes this huge giant magnet and all other social institutions in society and communities have shrunk and shriveled and they've become very small. So they don't have that. So they can't essentially compete for the time, energy, and devotion of a community in comparison to the workplace. And so that's what I saw happening in Silicon Valley. Essentially, the, the workplace monopolized everyone's time, energy, and devotion. And that all of these other institutions, social institutions in civil society, are families, are um, faith communities, our neighborhood associations, even our like small businesses, um, that all of these, in order to compete for the time, energy, and devotion of a community, they essentially have to uh, service the tech workplace and they have in order to get it. So this is sort of the story of the, of the Buddhist priests that I talked about, how in order to um, in order to get the time, energy, and devotion of his, the members of his zendo, he now had to go to the workplace and offer meditation classes there. So what we start to see is that you see is that all other institutions uh, now need to orient themselves in service to the tech workplace. So that's one thing that we're what, what we see happening there. Um, and um, the other thing that we're that we see happening is that essentially that there's really all these people who can't be a part of the tech workplace, right? Because it's in a very it's a very exclusive institution. Um, you need to have the right credentials in terms of you know educational pedigree, skills, uh, the right you need to be of the right gender, <laughs> you need to be of the right race. So all these people get excluded from Techtopia, right? Um, and you have to, and, and then you consider, well, if all these other social institutions are now servicing the tech workplace, what happens to all these other people? Well, I found that they get left behind. Um, and so what you see, so I, I'll use an example here is that I noticed that not only Buddhist priests, but, uh, Christian pastors and ministers 
also noticed that the members of their congregation were spending increasingly more and more time at work. And so many of these pastors had to, they were wrestling with this. Well, what should we do about it? Should we start a workplace ministry? Um, And one pastor opted to do that. He started a workplace ministry. But one of the things that he said to me is, you know, but when I start this workplace ministry, it's an employee resource group, um, the janitor can't attend. Um, only people who are contracted, you know, full-time employees can attend because everyone is base. Everyone is being paid by their time, right? They're contract workers. And so what happens then is things like being able to go to Bible study becomes kind of a perk that becomes associated with being a full-time employee at a company. Um, and you see these other social institutions diverting their resources to servicing the tech economy, the tech, to- and I call it the techtopian economy. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? You know, Mark, I'm just focusing right now on um, on on promoting the book, um, and um, but I have been thinking um, this project has really led me to think about how um, rising social inequality is affecting our formos- formation of communities and social solidarity. Hmm. It's a very uh, relevant topic. I, I look forward to seeing what you do with it. Thank you. Carolyn Chen, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark.